Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, Light, Advent week two, we are in the series called With Us. And the vision for this is that uh, the entire narrative arc of the Bible, if you were to go from Genesis to Revelation, and you were to follow everything in between, that you could summarize the Bible as this, God's relentlessly moving towards His creation in love. And that's what we want to capture. That's what Advent's all about, is God's relentless pursuit of His people. It seems like God is actually less interested in uh, getting us into His presence and more interested in getting His presence into us. Is this what we kind of see? As Jesus comes and He inaugurates His kingdom and He gives us His Spirit, His desire was to fill us with His presence, and we'll see that a little bit more. But today we're going to be talking about how God is with us as a stranger. Now this is my thesis, kind of the idea as I've been studying for this, that it kind of seems like this is what's happening. Jesus came as a stranger, and He lived His life for and with the estranged. Through His hospitality, they became family. And this is actually what Advent is. Jesus the stranger brings us into His family, welcomes us in as we navigate this strange land of exile. I think it's the good news of what Advent is, is that Jesus came not as some tidy person, but as a stranger. And so we're going to look at how he's with us as a stranger. And if you were to look at the entire Bible, I know I said it's God's relentless pursuit of us, but the incarnation in the gospel, you can't talk about it without getting to the abundant clarity that Jesus is the unwelcomed refugee. He's the stranger. He is the outcast, which is good news for us who are estranged and outcast in this world. So the three kind of main points for today is going to be um, God, the divine stranger, receiving divine hospitality, and then practicing divine hospitality. Our teaching text can be Luke 2, 6-7, and it says this, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. This is Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. No guest room available for them. Now, I'm keenly aware that most of us, myself included, we live in an affluent area, which, I mean, doesn't mean that we're devoid of struggles, but we aren't displaced. Um, Some of us maybe, but we're not typically houseless. We're not the Ukrainian orphan that's now in Germany. We aren't the Honduran wife and daughter sleeping on a mat on the floor next to the Haitian family down in Tijuana. I'm not desensitized to these realities, and yet, as hard as I try, um, I know that I can't know these experiences to the full extent. My hope is that through this talk, you guys will realize that Jesus actually does. The story of our friends that are down in Mexico, the story of our friends that are now in Germany, the story of the person who's on the corner, and your story. Jesus gets it emphatically. See, we can all enter into the very real, and for many of us, very front-of-mind feeling of estrangement. You know, the the not feeling like we belong, or not feeling like we fit in, or actually feeling like we've been cast out. We can all retrieve mentally, or even emotionally, the times where our heads hit the pillows and our stomach felt this ache of not feeling known or seen. We can feel like, even though we know that God has grace, and He extends that grace and love towards us, we hold ourselves in our own isolation, in our own jail cell of the secret sin, we feel distant and we feel alone. 
Many of us feel the division of broken relationships and that reels in our minds randomly as we're driving in our car or it keeps us up at night because we know we're like, oh man, if only they knew. See, there's this reality that even though we may not be in the refugee camp, we may not be on the corner in the streets, we all understand this deep ache and this deep feeling of isolation and estrangement. And this is the good news of Jesus. See, to the actual refugee and to the one who internally just carries the weight of strangeness and separation, Jesus the stranger is with us. He is the divine stranger. So that's the first point. He is the divine stranger. And we want to look at how he came from heaven to earth is the first thing. And so we talked about last week how Jesus, um, or God created everything, and he created this cosmic temple. When he created all things, he created it for the sake of his presence dwelling. He created all things for his presence. But then we see in Genesis 2, 21 through 22, it says, So the Lord God calls, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from that rib he had taken out of the man, and he had brought her to the man. Now, the word rib is actually a bit deceiving. The, the word is selah in Hebrew, which is an architecture term, which actually means side. It can be used for extra story, for the side of the building, for wainscot, or a supporting beam. But the idea was that his side was taken out. But what's fascinating, kind of with this cosmic temple imagery, is that this word selah in Hebrew is used 41 other times throughout the Old Testament. Almost every single one of the times it's used in context of the tabernacle. What this means in Genesis 2 is that from the beginning, Adam and Eve's bodies were called temples. We were the tabernacle of God. We see that theme picked up later on in the story, but temples and tabernacles were to house the presence of God, and so were our bodies. So we were created from the beginning for intimacy and for God's withness. This was the divine design is that we would have God with us. But then Genesis 3, we know it's the, it's the cosmic fall. Um, so these little tabernacles, Adam and Eve, right? They were cast out of the garden, out of God's presence. And so starts the cycle of God's relentless pursuit of his creation because we are estranged. The narrative isn't just about how we became strangers separated from God's presence because if you read the entire Old Testament, it's actually about God becoming a sojourner and exile and stranger with his people. God doesn't just have, we are not just strangers in the land, but God is a stranger with us. He begins to dwell in a tabernacle. Again, the imagery of Genesis 2, of we were meant to be the tabernacle, and then God has them design a tabernacle that would house his presence. Exodus 40, 34 through uh, 35, it says, Then the cloud, this is when they first built the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the design was is that they built this tabernacle based off God's design and then he filled it. And wherever they went, as they traveled throughout exile, he would dwell with them. They weren't just exiles and strangers and sojourners. God was too. And his pursuit was to be with them. 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. This is when the tabernacle then got a permanent location, so to speak, um, kind of. But it was still a place where God was like living that wasn't with us or in us. But the same scenario happens in, in verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, this is just after they built it, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their services because the cloud 
for the glory of the Lord filled this temple. So here is what's going on. Every time they, fit, they, they created the tabernacle or the temple, God's presence filled it. His desire was to be with them. But notice this, the tabernacle was good. The temple was good. It was God's attempt to be with, but it was incomplete. Because in both of these stories, you could see Moses couldn't go in to God's presence. The priests couldn't operate because of God's presence. See, it was good, but it was incomplete because there was no intimacy. Nobody in the Old Testament questioned, or nobody in Israel questioned the existence of God. They're like, there he is. He's right there. But nobody knew God. And that was not good enough for God. See, the tabernacle was God's presence without intimacy. And then enters Jesus. John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, right? Taking that imagery. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, that word came among us is actually the Greek word skene or skenao, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for tabernacle. So best translated, this is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The pattern of God building the tabernacle and God's presence dwelling in it is now finding its fulfillment here in Jesus because Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the place of God's fullness of presence with us. Meaning that this tabernacle, this refugee presence holder, the wandering God, the divine stranger, Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the presence with you. But not only now is this this thing that is in your midst, I'm presence, but without intimacy. I am presence with intimacy. I am the stranger with you. And not just so you can look at me, but you can know me. And I can know you. And Jesus coming as a stranger is good news for that reason. See, he came from heaven to earth. Philippians 2 says, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness. See, Jesus didn't lose his divinity, but he set his power and privileges aside. He traveled from heaven to earth, becoming a refugee. And then we see the story kind of continues. He goes from Nazareth, or his family, goes from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Luke 2, Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. That's Jesus. So already before Jesus actually enters into the scene, his family is already nomadic. And so they move from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and then he goes from the womb to the manger. And this is our teaching text. While they were there, the came the time for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Why? Because there was no guest room available for him. Jesus' birth story is that of a nomad, a stranger, someone who had no place, an outcast. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, And then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong. Our eyes are at fault. That is all. God is in the manger. Wealth is in poverty. Light is in darkness. Succor is in abandonment. No evil can befall us, whether men may do to us. They cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. 
See, we, we have this strange, this divine stranger who absolutely gets it. I love how he said that. It's wealth in poverty, light in darkness. I mean, he, he came, the divine God, as a sojourner and a stranger. And then from there he goes uh, to Egypt. And then he goes to Egypt and then goes back to Nazareth. And it says this in Matthew 2, when, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And then Matthew 2, 19-23, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to the dream and to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it almost seemed like they were going to go back to Bethlehem, but where they wanted to go, they couldn't. To go back to their home, they couldn't. And so they had to go back to this area of Nazareth. And so what I'm trying to get at is that everything you see in the birth story, in the Advent story, the first Advent story of Jesus, is that of a stranger, someone who wasn't welcomed, a place that there was no place for him. Outside of even just the Advent story, I want to continue this a bit because I think this is so provocative for us to understand, is that from Nazareth in Galilee, Jesus goes to Golgotha or outside the city gate. Hebrews 13, 11 through 14 says this, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For, he, uh, for we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. This is talking about the second advent. We're looking for Revelation 21, the new heaven and new earth. Like this is our longing. But what I want to highlight from this text is outside the city gate. See, the letter of Hebrews was written to the Jews. It was a Jewish audience. And so they understood the Jewish sacrificial system. And for centuries, worship in the Jewish context centered around animal sacrifice. And we kind of like are grotesque about that because, you know, we are gluten-free, dairy-free, and vegan, right? And we have Trader Joe's, so we don't need to sacrifice anything. But in an ancient agricultural society, it made perfect sense. See, sacrifice for forgiveness happened on a temple altar, right? Because the wages of sin was death. And so what you would say is, God, here is my best. Right? This, was, this was my fattened calf. Essentially, this was saying, here is my savings account. This is all I've got. And so you would bring that to the priests and they would sacrifice it in the service of people. But later, after it happened in the temple, the priest would take the carcass of the animal outside the city gate and dispose of it. Forgiveness happened inside the city and disposal happened beyond the gate. You can almost hear the imagery of, of God's presence was inside Eden, but then they were cast outside of Eden. It means there's just these themes that keep happening. And this hill that Jesus was sacrificed on was called Golgotha. Now that hill, Golgotha, was strategically located just outside the city limits. In the ancient world, every city was a walled city. It was a thick stone wall that was for the sake of protection of its citizens, but it was also used for a more dehumanizing purpose for some, uh, for some citizens. See, the city outcasts were not allowed in. 
If you were sick, you were cast out. If you were an outcast, you were cast out. They were forced to fend for themselves somewhere beyond the wall. So to be a stranger, to be marginalized, to be a refugee, to be an outcast was actually a very real scenario. They were outside the margins of the wall, which made the gate, because the only way to come into the city, to the safety and society of the city, was through the gate. This made the gate the gathering place for the outcast. It made it the gathering place where everyone would hang out. This is where you'd see cardboard boxes and the blue tarps and the tents that have been tattered and overused, lining the streets of San Diego or what you might see in Encinitas. This is actually why so many biblical stories happen at the gate. Jesus, as he's entering into a new city, will see the blind man and the beggar and he'll stop and give them dignity because he is a stranger himself. He sees the estranged, he sees the outcast, he stoops down and heals and gives compassion and dignity. See, this is the gospel. The gospel is that when Jesus carried his cross outside the city gate to be crucified for the forgiveness of all, he made the margins, not the temple, the central place that his presence dwells. He was the tabernacle that was outside of Eden. He was the nomad who was wandering in exile He made his forgiveness available to those on the outside. In this one act, Jesus invited strangers to become family. See, those on the outside, he welcomed on the inside. See, his crucifixion was a way of bringing the stranger in. It was hospitality. It was the love of strangers. So the incarnation happening where there was no room at the inn for him, Jesus' life moving from place to place and the crucifixion happening outside the city gate. In these acts, the divine stranger identified with the estranged. And so by doing that, he made the stranger family. We are now embraced by his divine hospitality. We are in his family. And so this is good news that we're not alone as we navigate this world as strangers. John 1, 9 through 12 then talks about the true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but to his own they did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The world didn't recognize him. He was a stranger. And yet for those who receive him, we are welcomed by his divine hospitality. And so the second point is we need to respond. And the response to this divine stranger who didn't just in theory recognize our strangeness, but actually navigated strangeness as the tabernacle with us. We need to learn how to receive divine hospitality from him. Now we don't know much about the early stages of Jesus' life. Maybe there was like one story when he was 12. But we're introduced to Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry and his very first sermon ever is actually really compelling. Luke 4, 16 through 21, this is Jesus. He says, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Again, just the tabernacle imagery. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I am the tabernacle. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that the year of the Lord's favor is riffing on this idea that back in Leviticus, 
talks about the sabbatical year or the year of Jubilee, which was uh, seven times seven. So every seven years there was a year of release, but seven after seven kind of cycles of that, there was another year added on top. So the 50th year was a year of Jubilee. And this was a year where if you, had, um, if you were indebted, your debts would be released. If you were enslaved, you would be released. If you um, had land, you'd let your land sit and anybody could come, the widow, the orphan, anybody could come and pick from that land. It was a time of like full economic reset, full freedom from everybody. It was like this incredible year. Scholars believe that it was so incredible that they actually never participated in it because it would have changed history. But this is what Jesus is saying. This is the year that I'm coming to bring. I'm bringing this kind of reality. Patrick Schreiner says, Luke 4, 18 through 19, usually translated to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is to read the year of the Lord's welcome. Outsiders became insiders in Jesus' ministry as he spreads the welcome of the Lord to strangers and sinners. Jesus also spreads a banquet feast for people as he feeds them, a practice the early church continues as they break bread in their homes. See, the reality is, is that this was Jesus' mission. His very first sermon was his mission statement. This is what I'm here to do. I'm here to bring the strangers and the outsiders, to bring them into welcome, to do a reset, to allow people to be welcomed in. Colossians 1, 21 through 22, talks about what this means for us. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I then start thinking when I hear a sermon like this, like I need to go now do something. And though that might be an active step that we need to take, we need to remind ourselves that this is a reception first, that we need to receive the divine hospitality because we are strangers. So Colossians 1 says, At one time you were strangers to God and your minds were at war with him. Your thoughts and actions were wrong, but Christ has brought you back to God by his death and or his death on the cross. See, we need to have humility, not a hero mentality. And here's the difference, is that as we step out into this divine hospitality, or as we step out to extend hospitality to others, as we've been estranged, but we've been brought in, and now we step out to bring other people in, we need to do this from a place of humility, not a hero mentality. See, we follow in the way of Jesus. And if you notice, Jesus didn't just come from this place as God to say, oh, I'm like going to bring you in. His ministry and his way of doing it was that of identification. Jesus didn't just step back and sit on a throne and just say, oh, you're welcome. He identified with. He came to. He sat with. He saw eye to eye with. He recognized that the wave to our heart was through a way of identification. See, we can't just sit in this place and say, you need to come on in. I'm going to welcome you in. Though that is nice, that's not exactly the biblical way of doing it. The biblical way of doing it is to recognize first that we are strangers that we are desperately in need. And it's through the fact that we have been brought in, now we extend that to others. And so we're not this hero mentality, but we are in humility recipients as well. I love Psalm 23 and the very end of it. Kind of makes me uneasy because it talks about this idea of the divine host, which is now God, who's serving us or being hospitable to us. He says, you prepare a table before me In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, this psalm is beautiful for so many reasons, but the scandal of the conclusion of this psalm wouldn't have just been like, oh, this is like a really cute psalm that, you know, like I'm 
I'm a sheep and God is my shepherd. It's all of those things are really good, except for the scandal of this is that you, that you is Yahweh, God, you, divine host, prepare a table before me. You are the one that anoints my head with oil. And what this is getting at, and this is what I think is actually probably the the biggest struggle in our walk with Christ is not going to be what we can do for God. I think it's going to be how we can receive from Him. See, this makes me uneasy because I can only imagine sitting there as the divine host is showing me hospitality and I don't deserve it. And that's kind of the point. We need to sit there with humility and say, God, I don't deserve it. But if you remember John 13, Jesus takes off his outer garment he puts on a towel, just the sign of, of a, a servant, of a slave, who would get down on their hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. But th- this was such a grotesque image that so much so, not only that like, another Jewish man was doing this and humbling themselves, but that their, their rabbi was doing this. So much so that Peter says, no, 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 I, I do this for you, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, if you don't let me do this for you, Peter, you have no part with me. So there's this reality is that if we cannot receive the divine hospitality of, from the divine stranger, that we have no part with him and his family. And so pastorally, we need to recognize, and I need to recognize, we're all strangers. In Jesus' incarnation, his advent in a refugee-type way was to extend welcome and divine hospitality to you and to me. Advent is that he came to do this. So my question is, what would it look like for you and for me to meditate on this reality and to rest in this reality today? That Jesus actually gets it, right? Not just like he's sitting back and like say, oh, I kind of understand. Like he truly gets it. He knows what it's like to be unwelcomed. He knows what it's like to not have room. He knows the pit of rejection in his stomach. He knows where it's like to not have a place to lay his head. Like whether you find yourself in a refugee camp on the streets or laying your bed at night lonely, Jesus gets it. And he's the only one that can bring true comfort and true peace and true joy and true hope. But this story also is about the advent that's coming. That we stand in the tension of Jesus coming in the past and then his coming in the future and that his advent that's coming is to end all strangeness once and for all. That the ache of isolation will be no more. And that the sting of sleepless nights alone will be no more. That the nagging feeling of being unknown will be no more. The divine stranger has brought us home. Joshua Jipp says this in Saved by Faith and Hospitality. says, God is a God of hospitality. God extends hospitality to his people and requires his people to now do the same to one another. In other words, God's, God's hospitality is the basis for our hospitality to one to another. So before we go into this next section, which is practice divine hospitality, we must not put the cart before the horse. That it is not that we do these things in order to be received into the home and the hospitality of our God, but that he has done that already and that is the basis through which we extend hospitality. But just so you can see that this is, this is a command and a commission for us because we've been hosted by the divine stranger. Romans 12, 13 says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And Hebrews 13, 1 through 2 says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. This part blows my mind. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. That's just a nuts like thing to think about. But the word hospitality that we now step into as, as people who have been hosted by God is philoxena, which literally means love of stranger. It's the exact opposite of xenophobia, which is the fear of strangers. And so what divine hospitality is, is reaching our hand across to someone who is now a stranger and having them become neighbor, having them become friend, having them become family. I love that Jesus so identifies with those people that he says in Matthew 25, he says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Verse 37, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty? When did we give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you as a sick person or in prison and go and visit you? In verse 40, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, as we welcome in the stranger, Jesus so identifies with them that he says, when you do that to them, you're doing that to me. I identify with them. And as an act of worship, as an act of saying, God, thank you, as an act of saying, you've welcomed me, I welcome you, we do this by extension to others. And so Henry Nouwen has this quote, and he says, In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture, and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. Although many, we might say even most, strangers in the world become easily the victim of a fearful hostility, right? The fear of stranger. It is possible for men and women and obligatory for Christians to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. This is what Advent does is when we realize that Jesus extended to us a place where we as strangers can cast off our strangeness. We can be known by God. We can be hosted by the divine host and brought in to humanity, brought into the family of God, that we then extend that to others. This one final quote is uh, Simon Carey Holt, who's a theologian and a chef. And Simon says, at its base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. And so to end, what would it look like for us to begin to practice, maybe even this Advent? One, that first step is receive the divine hospitality. What would it look like for you and for me to create space and margin in our day to reflect on the divine hospitality of Jesus? Maybe it's going through 
the narrative of the Bible and recognizing that this is a God who became a divine stranger, not just to like walk around, but so that he could be with us, that he can resonate with us, he can be proximate to us, and not that his presence, not that we can get into his presence, but that he can get his presence into us. What would it look like to meditate on that this week? But then the second thing is, what, what would a practical step of now having received the hospitality of God to extend that to someone else? It may look like opening your table for someone to come. It may look like you just being in your neighborhood and being a good neighbor, being a good friend, welcoming someone in or getting to know the name of someone, starting off in just those little areas. Maybe it's just sending a text and noticing someone, recognizing them, saying, hey, I see you recognizing that God is the one who saw us in our strangeness. I also want to highlight, I mean, we have, um, we've had people who have been going down to the refugee shelter that's in Tijuana. Every week we've been having nurses going down and serving and, and caring for. I love just that imagery of Jesus says, whenever you did that to the least of these, you've done it to me. It's just this beautiful picture. We have a trip that's coming up on the 17th of December where we're just going to be providing Christmas toys and and we're going to go down there. We're just going to try to be embracing this divine hospitality for those who are strangers that Jesus identified with. And the other thing I want to highlight, and I know this isn't the launch of our open table season, but this is why we do open tables, is the idea that what would it look like if we had a space where we regularly patterned our life around hospitality? Where we said this is not just something we're going to do sporadically, but this is a way of life. This is a lifestyle for us that we are regularly going to have people in our homes. We're regular, and doesn't, you don't have to have a nice home. This is actually a thing that makes it different between hosting and then being hospitable, is that we're not trying to necessarily like bust out the fine china. We're not trying to like always do this serving type thing. We're trying to welcome people in as if they're family. So what does it look like in your one apartment or in your dorm room? Or if you don't have a home, what does it look like to like say, hey, could I come over, you know? But just to, to engage with people in a way that you say, I see you, I am with you, you're no longer stranger, but you're now family. See, this is what Advent's about, is that we have the divine stranger who gets it and then welcomes us into his family. And now we can navigate the strange world as part of the family of God. And so would we reflect on that this Advent? Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are a God that when we stepped away and separated from you, you didn't stay at a distance, you didn't point a finger, but God, you identified with, God, you traveled with, but you didn't even go that far. You went further to say, I'm going to be with you, and then you gave us your spirit to be in us, God, that we are welcomed into your family, that we are no longer strangers, God, and I pray for whoever's listening to this, Lord, that you would just reach out to them and that you would identify with them and that they would sense your presence and nearness with them. God, as we talk about your witness this Advent, would that become a reality that wherever we are in the darkness, wherever we are in our strangeness, that we would see you there and that we would sense your presence and you would bring us in to your family. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. <laughs>